You're talking about the hyper-woke. Yeah, the hyper-woke, like, perfectionist. And this is where the shame and wounding really, I think, comes in for so many people. Mm -hmm. They think the only way to engage in anti-racist work is to be perfect, which Mm -hmm. in and of itself continues to perpetuate the myth of perfection and power. White supremacy culture. White supremacy culture. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. On this episode of Humanize, Courtney and I get to talk with Dr. Melissa Bird, otherwise known as Missy. This is the second time Missy has joined us on Humanize. She was one of our first guests in season two, just when we were starting off. Back then, she was talking to us about her work in rebel activism. It was an amazing episode. So we asked her to come back and talk with us about her current work. Um, She does a lot of work with white female Christians um, among other different professional communities as well. She does a lot of um, retreats and helping people come together and create community and reconnect with themselves. Uh, She describes her work as she helps people tear down the walls that are keeping them stuck through spiritual regeneration and facilitation of healing from within. So we can't really box Missy into one particular type of work. You're just going to have to listen to the episode um, and see the wisdom that she shares with us We focused in here on this episode, what emerged was talking about the dangers of the (laughs) hyper-woke. I love this topic. Um, We explore how perfectionism and hyper-vigilance actually perpetuate white supremacy. And this is a trap that people are falling into as they have a wonderful intention of doing better, but we have to be mindful of how we are trying to improve the culture and society and the conditions in which we're living in. Um, So enjoy this episode. And this is definitely a lively conversation between the three of us. You're not going to want to miss this one. What's going on, Humanized family? We're back at it again. Um, It is always amazing when we can have interviews again with past individuals that we interviewed before. Um, we had the blessing um, and the honor to interview Missy. Um, she's brilliant, um, an activist, a worker, someone who's definitely um, an agitator of the status quo. And um, <laughs> yes, we're so appreciative for everything that she's doing. And before we go into it, you know, I got to make the same disclaimer. Um, please get the necessary approval and um, and respect that needed from individuals that you want to have these kind of conversations with um, so that we can always move in dignity and continue to humanize this struggle that we're in. So let's um, get to it and move on. Yes, Dr. Melissa Bird, welcome back to Humanize. Thank you. I'm so happy to see both of you. I'm psyched to get to sit down with you. It was like, gosh, well, how long ago was it? Was it last year that we talked or the year before that? Time is weird. I feel like it was a really long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. I actually, 
actually don't know. It was right at the beginning of season two when we started having guests on. I feel like you were one of our first guests. Yeah, I coming think so. on. That sounds about right. Oh, well, I'm excited to catch up with you. And, you know, as we were chatting before the show of, you know, really getting focused on the the topic that we wanted to explore today with you, Missy, given your particular trajectory in life and and focus and what speaks to you is you you were talking about um kind of just like the current upheaval <laughs> this wave of upheaval that's happening for folks and particularly did you say white female christian wit yet yeah, yeah. Or, yes. yes and kind of the sense of like what is going on? This is not what I signed up for. How do we how do we move ahead in this? Like, how do we walk through this darkness and murkiness and and all of that? And is that it, tell me tell me about what you're witnessing and how you came to be witnessing it? So really, since we've talked, I've started um, working with all of these women who um, who are really <clears throat> they've they feel like they were moving in this pathway their whole lives they've been taught about Christ and Jesus and um, loving their neighbor and all of those things and the I think all of the culmination of just the particular politics and the anti-racism that we've all been starting to explore and talk about. And then it culminated in that seven days of the overturning of Roe versus Wade with the Dobbs decision, the the complete annihilation of tribal sovereignty by the Supreme Court, and then the, the dismantling of the EPA being have, able to have regulatory jurisdiction over our environment, Mm-hmm. And the culmination of all those things together has left a whole bunch of women in particular sitting there looking around going, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. And it is leading to so much shame and mm. w- like identifying all of this shame and wounding, which I think is why I speculate this is why white women in particular, but I think also um men really struggle with doing this work because mm. they are so unsure of their footing in the world right now. I mean, I even see mm-hmm. this in my own husband, bless him. Like, you know, he has to live with me. And <laughs> I even see it in him where he's like, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. And I'm like, I think you have to do it. <laughs> White straight guy. Like, I think it's really important. And so I think what, what I wanted to come on here and talk with y'all about is is this this upheaval of we've peeled back a whole nother layer of how do I understand this and how do I navigate the pressure to perform in my home and in my church and the knowledge that I can no longer continue to remain silent. Mm, mm-hmm. And how how do you move forward in that within a, a culture 
like a white supremacy culture, which doesn't, which demands perfection and doesn't allow for mistakes. So while that is the norm, how do you deconstruct knowing you will be making a lot of mistakes because there's not a lot of people getting this, this right, you know, like there's, (laughs) it's just, uh, wow. So before we explore that, can you just back us up a little bit and talk to like, just just recap for our listeners. I know you have an amazing path <laughs> that you've taken, but how you, you know, where you grew up and your background and and how you got kind of tuned in to the Christian church. And I know you have a, a particular role within the Christian church that's not that common as well. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in Utah, but I'm okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I did not grow up LDS. Um, my parents were part of the LDS church and then my dad, um, committed suicide when I was six and oh. basically the bishop of our ward kicked my mom out of church. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And oh my so, gosh. um, at, we were not a part of the LDS church. However, it is impossible to grow up in Utah and not be part of the culture of the LDS mm. church. And, mm-hmm. um, and so for me, that was a constant struggle because I'm Native American, I'm Southern Paiute. It wasn't until my adulthood, because my dad was Southern Paiute, that I figured out, it wasn't until my adulthood that I figured out who I was and where I came from. My mother never, ever talked about that part of my ancestry, ever. Because um, she so didn't you, understand did you, it and she didn't know it. Did you stay connected with your dad's family no, at all? No, no, there was a lot of... Uh, abuse and terrible things with that part of my family. And so basically we were cut off from that part of my family. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I found my family online because, you know, there's the power of the internet, Mm. right? That's how you can Uh, find your family. mm. (laughs) So I found my brother, my brother, cousin, Stephen, and I found one of my uncles. and, And so it wasn't until my adulthood that I was able to reconnect with that part of my family but what's really interesting, mm. you know, growing up in Utah as a bisexual, feminist, Native American, you know, you name it, I was all the no-nos. <laughs> I was all Gosh. the no-nos, right? And, oh, um, you know, punk rock, you know, heavy metal girl, right? Like, I was just trouble all over the place. But one of the things that has been so profound for me is that my eldest daughter wanted to go to church. And I was like, oh, hell no, I'm a, I'm a witch. Like, I'm not going to church. I'll walk mm-hmm. in there and like get start on fire right away. No, no. <laughs> and so I called uh, some really good friends of mine who, um, a gay couple in Southern California, and I said, I need you to find me a church. And I knew they were part of the Episcopal church. Uh-huh. And so long story short, we he, one of the Marks, called all these churches around us here in Oregon and found, uh, he's like, I really want you to go to this church. I'm like, "Mm -mm, no, no, I'm not going to go to church. It's Easter Sunday on Sunday. I'm not going to church. And he's like, it's the perfect day. No one will know you're there. (laughs) You'll just blend right in. So anyway, it took months, but we went. And what happened was completely unexpected. I went into church and started sobbing, like ugly crying with snot coming out of my nose. Oh my goodness. And every Sunday for four months, we three or four months, we go to church and I would just ugly cry. Huh. And I was like, what's happening? What is happening? I don't understand what's going on. And 
it was that connection to spirit in a way that I had, it was the holiest, Mm. most profound opening for me. Mm. Mm. But what happened is eventually I ended up becoming a lay preacher with the church. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I was talking to a friend of mine from church who studies paganism and theology and feminism. And Mm -hmm. and she was like, you know, you can be, because I was like, do I, am I a witch or am I a Christian? Like, I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. They've been put at odds. And and, you know, (laughs) all of the things, feminist, bisexual, Native American, pagan, witch, like I'm all the no-nos, right? Mm-hmm. And Wendy's like, you can be all the things. And I was like, that's impossible. <laughs> How is this possible that? that I can love Jesus and still do magic all at the same time? <laughs> and it was such a profound moment for me because I realized how many more people do I know who have been raised in church Raised mm-hmm. in church, because I was not raised in church, right? Like, I came to this as a, as a eyes wide open adult. How mm-hmm. many more people are there who are sitting in church going, I know that this is not the Jesus of the Bible that I am learning. Mm-hmm. That social justice Jesus is not the Jesus that these people are preaching about from the pulpit to me. Mm-hmm. These restrictions. Jesus is opening. He's not a closing. Mm. And I had this moment where I was like, well, of course I am the way I am because God made me this way. (laughs) And how creator made me exactly as I am. Mm -hmm. And if Mm -hmm. that is true, and if God is love and we are made in God's image, then we are love. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, (laughs) if we are all love and that's the default, then how can we stop with the shaming and the guilting and that you're not doing it white mm-hmm. and the you need to get you need to get it together the anger the vitriol the madness yeah. and start yeah. having a dialogue instead of an argument every time we open our mouth right because that's certainly what I see I in doing doing this work is the an experience the shame the guilt the default defensiveness. There, it does feel like there is just this this conversation that's happening in that's like so far beyond the individual that it's overwhelming. And um, if you're in a position of power, as I am in a white body, then the easiest thing is to not engage with it or pretend like it's not there, right? So what are you what are you seeing as you know what are, what are the cracks in the armor <laughs> of you know working working with these strong emotions working with the the profound confusion of like how did we how do we even get here let alone how do we get out of it I'm seeing a lot forward. of of very conservative people mm-hmm. who don't want to be labeled as progressive but are more progressive thinking. And then I'm seeing a whole lot of progressive people who don't really want to be labeled as conservative, but are a lot more conservative thinking. And everybody's starting to, not everybody, but a lot of people are starting to be in this messy middle. Mm. How are you no seeing rules. that? Like what, what kind of examples are like, 
A really good example is is that I I uh, just connected with a bunch of evangelical women who were raised evangelical Christian, right? And like homeschooled, like, like homeschooled, all the things, right? All the and things. And then they all of a sudden they're like, "That's not how the world is." Oh man, <laughs> can't imagine. And they're like, "We don't know what to do." And so they're overcompensating. I see this a lot, right? They're overcompensating for the shame, the perfection, the the like the the good girl role, they're overcompensating by being, I call it, like, this is just me, my term, being hyper-progressive. So we oh, have to yeah. say all the right things. We have to use all the right words. We have to be perfect in our activism, which is also not a form of authenticity. It's also a form of perfection. And it's one of the things that keeps them from really digging into the soul work mm. of engaging in anti-racist work i so that, see it i'm part of yeah. the anti-racism uh we have a racial justice working group for the diocese of oregon and i uh -huh. see it in those folks on the in the working group all the time like they uh -huh. overcompensate everyone wants to have the perfect land acknowledgement and i'm the <laughs> yes. only indigenous person in this group that's and gonna solve all to of me our problems y'all that's not the point <laughs> Perfect land acknowledgement. Right. And we have. So you're talking about the hyper woke. Yeah. The hyper woke, like perfectionist. And this is where the shame and wounding really, I think, comes in for so many people. Mm -hmm. Is that they think if they, the only way to engage in anti racist work, the only way to engage in, you know, in helping people understand LGBT issues sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, is to be perfect. Mm. Which mm -hmm. in and of itself continues to perpetuate the myth of perfection and power. White supremacy culture. White supremacy culture. Mm. How are you no seeing rules. that? Like what what kind of examples are like a really good example is is that I I uh, just connected with a bunch of evangelical women who were raised evangelical Christian, right? And like homeschooled? Like, like homeschooled, all the things, right? All the and things. And then they all of a sudden, they're like, that's not how the world is. Oh, man. <laughs> Can't imagine. And they're like, we don't know what to do. And so they're overcompensating. I see this a lot, right? They're overcompensating for the shame, the perfection, mm. the, the, like, the, the good girl role. They're overcompensating by being, I call mm -hmm. I, like, this is just me, my term, being hyper-progressive. So we oh, have to yeah. say all the right things. We have to use all the right words. We have to be perfect in our activism, which is also not a form of authenticity. It's also a form of perfection. And it's one of the things that keeps them from really digging into the soul work mm. of engaging in anti-racist work. I so see that, it. I'm part of yeah. the anti-racism. Uh, we have a racial justice working group for the Diocese of Oregon. And I uh -huh. see it in those folks on the in the working group all the time. Like they uh -huh. overcompensate. Everyone wants to have the perfect land acknowledgement. And I'm the <laughs> yes. only indigenous person in this group. That's and they gonna keep solve all of our problems. Y'all, that's not the point. The <laughs> perfect land acknowledgement. Right. And we have So you're talking about the hyper woke. Yeah, the hyper woke, like mm -hmm. perfectionist. And this mm -hmm. is where the shame and wounding really, I think, comes in for so many people. Is mm -hmm. that they think if they, the only way to engage in anti-racist work, the only way to engage in, mm -hmm. you know, in 
helping people understand LGBT issues, sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, is to be perfect. Mm. Which Mm -hmm. in and of itself continues to perpetuate the myth of perfection and power. White supremacy culture. White supremacy culture. I, yes, I, I, you've said so much, you know, as an activist, when people hear, when people hear me speak, they often say, um, hey, that was great, but do you have to do it so aggressively? Or I've heard sometimes where you, uh, why are you so angry? And I say, I'm not angry at all. However, I'm passionate because the issue is is a life and death one for me. You know, every day that people of color leave their house, it's not one into an inviting culture. You know, it's not one into a safe place. And so to hear you say you lose authenticity, you lose um, purity for the actual call that you seemingly are fighting for when you try to be super woke or perfect. That is, is something that I love. I'm, I really appreciate that. I really do because I think that's the problem with CRT. That's the problem with speaking about racism at, at all because individuals are filled with guilt. Not understanding that individuals, POCs and other oppressed groups don't care about your guilt because that's not going to help us gain freedom. We want the acknowledgement and we want the work to be done so that we all can be free. Not your you being upset about slavery is not gonna do anything for me. Oh my God, slavery happened. I am so sorry, Courtney. I'm so sorry. Oh my God. All right, cool. But what are we gonna do when I'm driving my car and I may get shot by a police officer uh, because of biases that they may have towards people of color at large, black men, you know? And so like, I think once we get over being perfect and start to just be, I think we'll start to move this needle towards um, dismantling of white supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love what you said about just being, because I think that, and I think that this is really the thing that my clients struggle with. The women that I work with struggle with constantly is there's so much pressure to perform perfectly Mm -hmm. and they're speaking out against things that bother them. Right. Like, like they know that the conversation they have with their kids is not the same conversation that black moms have with their kids or indigenous Mm -hmm. moms have with their kids or Asian moms have with their kids, but they know that they have to have that conversation. So their kiddo understands as they're growing up, how to have empathy for their friends when their friends are like, oh, you could just walk around with no problems, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, I see Mm -hmm. this in my son, my 11-year-old son, right? Like, he's like, it's really interesting, mom, to walk around with my friends. I'm like, I bet it is, because, you know, he's got friends of color, and and he's like, Mm. it's, mom, it's it's really different. And I'm like, Mm. and if, if all I have done is have my kiddo say, I see it. Right. That, say, that is, and I that stand fast up for it him through. on the playground. Right. Then he's going to be an adult who sees it and speaks out about it as an adult. And, and at the same time, we've got all these moms who are just like hyper vigilantly focused on doing it perfect. 
Mm. And they're not just being, and they're not listening to the information and they're not absorbing the information. And in the same time, they're looking at passionate people of color going, could you just calm down? <laughs> no, mm-hmm. 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 no, <laughs> because, because we are all here to be equally as passionate about these issues. Mm-hmm. That, I, that, the way that you described your son just made me, it, it feels like he will not get caught in the trap that I see so many people getting caught is, is that initial, it kind of feels like a well of defense that comes up when difference is pointed out for, for white people, because it's like, but no one told me there was difference and I'm 30 or 40 years old. And now you're telling me, I just have to accept that diff- people have different realities. Um, but 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 I feel like I'm a good person, and then they they get caught there, and uh, yeah, it's um, there. I wanted to put this forth as well. Is this, you know, we're talking about shame and guilt. This has in in all my years doing intercultural work and anti-racism work, this is this has definitely been a constant, is the shame and guilt. But the new narrative is, I know I shouldn't be feeling shame and guilt. And so that's, I feel like another layer of, of a stab to the heart is because it's like, what, Emily, what am I supposed to feel? I'm like, I can't, <laughs> I have never been in a situation where I told someone how to feel and they felt that way. Right. And so that's where I think we're we're losing authenticity is just in the notion that we shouldn't feel how we're feeling. Right? Except for all of these evangelical Christian, fundamentalist Christian, LDS people, like people who are raised in the belly of the church are uh-huh. totally taught how to feel. Oh, yeah. They are totally oh. told how to feel. And so this they're looking is the for the whole next narrative we are missing in this dialogue of anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy. Uh-huh. Everybody yeah, I don't have... is told how to feel when they're sitting in church. Every time they are in church. And if that's yeah. the culture they are yeah. raised in at home, they are told how to feel at home. And so those of us that have been doing this work, we're activists. We're involved. You know, we, I'm, I've been doing this since I was 17 and I'm 48 this year. Like, mm-hmm. those of us have been in it and lived in it and we're steeped in it. Oh, I'm covered in the chills. So good. What we're missing is that, of course, we have all these people saying, I need you to tell me how to feel. Because mm. they don't they don't know. Mm-hmm. Which is what mm-hmm. I think is so powerful about shame and guilt and this wounding. Mm-hmm. Is that is that they the all of these people are like coming out of the proverbial Christian closet going, huh? I can feel my own feels. I don't even know what that looks like or could be. I don't even know what my feelings are. I have several clients who are like, wait a minute, that's a feeling? I'm on mm-hmm. a feeling right now. And they're like, I've that's, never experienced I that mean, before. That's interesting because I I was kind of listening to this narrative as kind of learning about, you know, LDS. That's And like, I, I'm not exposed to that at all. I went to church like for Sunday school every now and then and Christmas. Like that was my Christian background. But what you're saying about the feeling piece, that definitely has been a part of my path and my work. And um, 
feeling like I was, you know, raised in the Northeast where the mind and the intellect was the most important thing. And the feelings were not particularly welcomed. You know, they, it's, it was basically like, oh, you have a negative feeling. Let's put it on the clock. How quickly can you get rid of it on your own over there? (laughs) And so to actually move into feeling and trust it is definitely part of my continued path. And that, that really resonates for me. And if you add the trauma response to everything as, as people of color and people who have expressed, you know, have experienced generational oppression Mm -hmm. that you don't feel then either. Mm. Like you have to Mm -hmm. cut off your feelings to get through trauma too. Oh yes. You see the, the, the brilliance of white supremacy is that it created poverty, you know, and, and while you're living in poverty, and you're experiencing that reality, you don't have time for emotions. You don't have time for feelings. You're just trying to survive. And while you're surviving, um, if you, this is why people of color have issue with mental health, um, um, any kind of mental health help, you know, psychiatry, going to the doctor, any kind of help outside of just making it day to day is something that we don't know. We can't, ha- we don't have the time to know. Um, mm-hmm. The system is is built to make sure that your feelings, person of color, don't matter. And white person, your feelings, they matter only if it's still within the constraints of perpetual power for white men. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's that's the re- that I mean, it's it's such a brilliant construct that it, it's like shame if you take away from what we've done for you and the life that you've had, white mm-hmm. person. So this is why I always tell white people too that um, you are affected by white supremacy in a in a different way, but in a very detrimental way. Because if you're trying to, um, the whole thing about right now is don't indoctrinate your kids. But like we said before you're indirectly indoctrinating your kids by telling them what to think and how not to feel and not to understand and not to know. So and so the thing that you're fighting for, which is freedom of thought, you're incarcerating the thought by telling your children what not to think about. Don't mm-hmm. worry about the people over there. Don't worry about the education. Don't worry about this. Because if you know that, it might lead to shame and guilt and an understanding of, of, wow, I am not as perfect or good as I think I am. They Maybe I'm not deserving of the supremacy position yeah. <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. too, the thing that you're really hitting on is that we've also, and, um, and this goes back to my magic, right? Like, we've also taught people, you are not allowed to listen to your intuition, so depending mm-hmm. on how you connect to a, a power that is higher than you spiritually, whether that's through, you know, church or ritual or prayer, whatever that looks like, casting spells, whatever it is, we have trained this nation to not listen to our intuition because it's mm-hmm. dangerous to listen to your intuition to people in power, right? That's right. that completely dismantles the positions of power for people if if everyone was going to walk around and actually listen 
to Mm. themselves, listen to their divine assignment, listen to their intuition, say, you know what, right now, I'm just going to follow my heart and I'm going to, I'm going to lead with my heart and see what happens because that's very vulnerable. And that's, that disrupts power to to listen to our inner voice, which always goes back to compassion and love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is, we, released an episode. So in time, it will have been released before. Uh, um, just the the condition, kind of the condition of the souls of the people that had to actually separate the families at the border. And I feel like that's an example of had they been in a culture where it was like, pause, listen to your intuition, you know, and these are officers who have families, who have young kids, their intuition would have never been able like and so we were trained to override that you know and because of what we've been taught around power and and it's an interesting moment because i feel like a lot of us are like quite disillusioned with our government's structure right now it's kind of eating itself from within well and this (laughs) is what i keep saying yeah this is what i keep saying to people too like why are we trying to preserve a democracy that was founded on the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny Like, for those of your listeners who don't understand what those two things are, look it up. The Doctrine of Discovery was the papal bull that Mm -hmm. was put out by the Christian Mm -hmm. church that said, any land you land on, if there are people there, kill them all and Mm -hmm. take the land. Mm -hmm. Everywhere Mm -hmm. you go, Christopher Columbus, everybody else, kill the people, enslave the people, take the land. That's the doctrine of discovery in like my little Reader's Digest condensed version. For those of you who don't understand it, look it up because it is what our entire democracy was founded on the doctrine of discovery. And then manifest destiny is this idea of white supremacy that says, go to the West and take over everything you can in westward expansion until you hit another ocean. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that's their destiny. And that's your that destiny. That's, that's your what they're manifest so, that's what they're destiny. Here to There's do. a beautiful angel that comes down and will go yeah. with you in your westward expansion. Mm-hmm. Well, why are we trying to preserve a democracy built upon those foundational principles? Mm-hmm. Power. You exactly. Know, you, you, Power. This is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and see, what people don't understand is if everyone around the table has power, then everyone around the table is more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like that, that's, right. I don't, like, it, it's it's simple, you know? It's not like, a zero-sum game. But it's not. So if I'm the only one around the table with both of you guys, and I'm the only one powerful, like, yeah, I'm powerful. But yet all three of us are powerful. Now we've multiplied by three. And so, like, I don't understand yeah. why we won't move in that direction. But again, when you created a system on the backs of other people and you don't even know what that would look like for everyone to have power, it's, it's frightening for people in power. And it's, it's kind of like the, the power that you would be holding in that hypothetical is, sure, you might be able to like hoard resources, but you wouldn't actually mm-hmm. have a complete power because you wouldn't truly know what we were thinking or feeling or seeing from exactly. our traditional ways of knowing. And exactly. so you'd only be seeing part of the picture. You'd only be mm-hmm. able to solve part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So it's like we haven't even envisioned what could be possible because we don't have access to all the voices. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe like that 
fundamentally, if we can get the right voices, diverse voices at the table, we can start solving these massive problems, you know, 100%. but we're just not willing to listen. Well, and this goes back to my whole thing about really hoping to reach people who are sitting in church and who use the Bible as, as a text and who are thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? This is not what I signed up for. And, mm-hmm. and there's a part of the Bible where Je- Jesus gets really mad and, and be at the injustice of the people in the temple. And he flips up the table of, of you know, the, the men who are hoarding all the money and all the resources. And he flips that table upside down and he's like, enough is enough. And he yells mm-hmm. in the temple and he's like, mm-hmm. this is not okay. Like, we are not yeah. going to continue this injustice. And what my hope is that we start flipping the tables, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I really simple example of this that's happened just recently in our own lives is my husband and I are trying to buy land to Mm -hmm. build a retreat space and an aquaculture farm so we can have safe and healthy fishies. Mm -hmm. Yay. Um, But so we can create a space where people can reconnect to the land, their bodies and themselves. Yeah. And the foundational principle is that everybody it's radical welcome, that everybody is welcome at the table. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing that's been so fascinating about this is I was literally talking to someone about funding for, you know, for the farm who's called the USDA the last great American plantation. Mm -hmm. Because the USDA is set up to keep black indigenous people of color from buying land. It's set up to to keep legacy farmers on property. Okay. Uh, But uh here is another Uh structure as I peeled it back. The um, the nation has um, organizations called Farm Credit Services. So like we have Northwest Farm Credit, right? Well, the way they're set up to loan is like, for example, they have a veteran's carve out. Great, fabulous. But you have to have three years of farming experience to qualify, farm management experience to qualify for that loan. Well, there's mm-hmm. not a veteran in this country unless they grew up on a farm that has farm management experience, Right. So Mm -hmm. one of the things we're doing is every single person who works on volunteers at is part of our farm is all going to be called a manager. I don't care what you're doing on property. I don't care what you're doing there. Like we're opening it all up for students because black and indigenous students in particular here in Oregon can't do regenerative and sustainable research because no farms will let them on property. And we're Mm -hmm. a regenerative and sustainable model. So like, Mm -hmm. but everybody's going to be a manager. Because if I'm going to flip the table and disrupt this entire system of the way we do agriculture in this country, at least in my little world, Mm -hmm. then everybody's going to be a manager because I don't want anybody to try and get a loan to get property and be told you've got to have three years of management experience. Wow. That's awesome. That's right. And that (laughs) is a way of flipping that table and going, okay, Enough is enough. I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen and make this work. And that, I think, is what people miss. And Courtney, I heard you go, mm, when I was talking about compassion and love. Mm. Because I think this is where we disrupt that perfectionist shame and wounding. Is if Mm. we start to have self-love and self-compassion and really start to figure out how to feel it, all of us to love ourselves first, which we've been trained is selfish mm. or that is impossible, is impossible yeah. to love ourselves because of who we are. Mm. If we start yeah. to have mm. compassion for our imperfection as 
naturally occurring human beings on the planet. And this is what I really want to invite you all to think about, because I know you guys are going to love this. <clears throat> we have been trained by white supremacy and racism that we are separate and above nature mm-hmm. as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. And we are intricately woven into the fabric of the trees and the rivers and the birds and the mountains. We are woven in the fabric of nature because we are naturally occurring things. Right. And in my ba- in my ancestry, that is Celtic ancestry and Paiute ancestry, we are created as we are naturally occurring woven things on this planet, right? Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. White supremacy says we are separate and above as human beings. Mm-hmm. But when we start to look at it as we are woven in the fabric of humanity and nature, then we recognize that we would never look at, like visualize for just a minute your favorite naturally occurring thing, like a mountain, a river, a bird, whatever it is. You would never look at that thing and say, oh, dang, oh, river, you are so beautiful, but could you move a little to the right? Because if you do that, then you're going to cut out a better stream for me, (laughs) right? Oh, tree, you are so beautiful, but you're not symmetrical enough. Could you just move your leaves a little bit so the sun will come through just right? Like we would never do that, but we do it to ourselves all the time. Uh, And the minute uh we stop saying to ourselves, you need to get it together. You're not doing it right. You're not okay. You're a bad person. The minute we stop saying that to ourselves and we go, oh, dang. I mean, we're not even put together in the womb we're, we're like crooked. One ear's bigger than the other ear. One foot's bigger than mm-hmm. the other foot. One hand's bigger mm-hmm. than the other hand. We're crooked. We're not mm-hmm. perfect. Mm-hmm. We're not naturally meant to be perfect. So why do we have this expectation? Oh, so that we can maintain power and control. Mm-hmm. But if we start and, uh, to explore this, go, Courtney, tell me. I want to know what you think about this. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, I, I, I love it. And the thing about it is, the thing about white supremacy that was built for white men to continue to be perfect because they themselves don't have to be perfect. Yes. Because the system is in, is is built for them to reap the perfection that is sought after by us. Yeah. You know, and so like it, it's just a weird, it's a paradoxical thing because come to me, I am all knowing. You have to be perfect because I am here. But if I make a mistake. Do as I say, don't do as I do. Yes. You know, mm. so you have the prime example, the criminal justice system. If I do a crime, mm. I'm mm. going up under the fucking jail. But if someone else does the same crime, it's like, okay, you know what? It was a bad time in their life. Let's work with them. Let's not do it. It's so this one, like I have to always be better than, yep. not even better than, almost like a fake type of, perfection versus individuals who don't look like you. Yep. You know? mm-hmm. And so like I used to see in the hospital a guy with tats everywhere. Brilliant physician, white guy, bald head, tats everywhere like a biker, amazing guy. Cool. Another guy, long hair, black guy had tats. He was looked upon as too ghetto. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I'm like, yo, these guys look almost alike, you know, but the white guy was an artist, you know, the black dude was a thug. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. admit that, you know, and so I just, I, it, it, everything is coming full circle. And as you had that come, you said what you just said 
it resonates with me because a lot of times now in my life, I know what I look like, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that. I love, you know, it's, uh, because there are other individuals who aren't sure if they can exist in a world that's not built for them looking like this. And I just want to represent a yes for you. Yes. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so that, that it resonated with me when you said that. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think this focus of um, what happens when we when we perceive that there's a mistake is really important. I was recently reading some work by Robert Livingston, who's been doing DEI work forever. And he was urging DEI practitioners like myself to just have people focus in on what happens when you make a mistake, because we can sit here and be like, oh, I don't have biases. I'm not racist. I don't, you know, Mm. I don't judge people when I'm like calm and just had a cup of coffee and blah, blah, blah. But it's when we make mistakes and where I had been thinking my line of thought was just around like, okay, how do I, in working with clients and working with myself, tune into what happens when I make a mistake and in, in my interaction with other people and what, you know, where I start judging and, you know, where my mind goes. But what I appreciate about what you just said, Missy, is that to be watching the self-talk as well and seeing how, how we're treating Ourself, and then how that feeds mm. into how we're treating and what we're expecting of other people and holding each other to this unrealistic, you know, height and, uh, you know, idea of, of perfectionism, which is so painful and so oppressive to everyone. Um, it's just a really, um, I don't know, that inner work sometimes is, is, um, sounds really vague in like the DEI world and doing the work. And that's a really tangible way. I don't know if you have any like particular practices that you pass along to, to clients to help them tune into that self-talk and check that self-talk because it requires a level of self-awareness to even hear it as not particularly real. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the way truth. I describe it to people is if you feel like you're playing whack-a-mole at the fair, like you're trying to push down like if you if all of a sudden you feel like you're trying to push down all of these things, like you feel like you're just doing way too much and you feel like just totally chaotic, uh-huh. then you just stop and you take a nice big deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Mm-hmm. It gets you right back into alignment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you do the next thing. Mm-hmm. So whatever... And, and this is how you really tap into your intuition is you take that mm. nice, big, deep grounding breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. And you say, what do I do next? And the first thing that comes in your head, the fr- it's literally within five seconds, it's an inhale and an exhale. The first thought that comes in your head is the next thing you do. Mm. And it may be that that thing mm. is you have a cup of tea. And it may be that that thing is you write a manifesto. And it may be that thing is that you call your best friend and say, I don't know if I'm doing this right, but I really want you to know that I love you and I'm thinking about you. Like, I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it's that intuitive thought that happens in the first five seconds. And then we have feelings about the thought. And that's what always derails us is we're like, right. oh, I can't do right. that. That wouldn't be appropriate. I don't know about that. I'm not supposed to feel guilty. <laughs> I'm not supposed to feel this way. But mm-hmm. But when you start to act with your intuition and you take that big, deep grounding breath and it just, I mean, I feel it now so deeply because it's such a part of my practice. I feel all the things click into alignment 
in my body mm-hmm. when I do that breath. And it literally takes five seconds. And if we just started it, doing that, mm-hmm. instead of trying to play whack-a-mole and push all the things down and try and push all the things down and push all the things down. Mm-hmm. When we take action from that space, it's a taking action from an inspired intuitive space. Mm-hmm. And not just to do it, just to do it because we want to feel good. And we want people to see us going, oh, look at me. I'm being a good person. I'm the good white person. I'm the good white person, right? Like when Mm -hmm. we take action from that space of intuition, then it's inspired and it's intuitive and it's guided. Mm -hmm. Do you you find that that is true even with people without a lot of exposure to other cultures? Because sometimes I wonder about like, that intuition being driven by our unconscious. And I think that you're talking about a, a way deeper intuition, but sometimes I, I have trouble with like, is this my conditioning or is this my intuition? Well, it's always intuition if it's loving and kind. If it has mm. something associated with it, it's ego and it's conditioning. Mm. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so even if you have not been exposed to other cultures, when we take action from that space of intuition, from that space of our internal knowing, it is not from external information that we've received that's been packed into our head. And this, I imagine, which goes way deeper. Like that's a whole other. Right, I know that's all. <laughs> that's like ten podcasts, yo. <laughs> this is this. I feel like is also. I imagine it's bolstered by time and nature. Like it's it's amplified and more accessible. I, when you were talking about the retreat center that you're imagining, I was remembering watching um, my octopus teacher. Have you, have you seen that? And I just loved it so much. And I was bawling, bawling afterwards for so long. And I felt like, you know, this is a documentary um, that this guy created of himself developing a relationship with an octopus over a year, starting with a very isolated, angry version of himself and ending with the capacity to really connect with his son, just spontaneously arising. And it just made me be like, this is part of, this is part of the path of people, you know, all of us being able to to feel connected to other people is feeling that connected with nature. Well, and this mm. goes back to what Courtney was talking about earlier about poverty. Like, look at what we have done to people of color. We isolate mm. them. We take them away from nature and we put them mm. into concrete buildings. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what they did to, I mean, there's not, I'm going to the Navajo nation to stay with my cousin in September. And I was like, where do I fly in and fly out of? And he's like, well, we're five hours from Phoenix and three hours from Albuquerque. And I'm like, dang, like the geographical isolation of indigenous people is so willful and intentional. Mm. Right. And Mm -hmm. it got all of us out of our natural tribal nature. Right. Because it took us out of our, our land and put us in land that we had to acclimate to. Right. Right. And so if we I mean, this this also and I know Courtney you're on a time frame and I I'm, I want to be cognizant of that. But I think that ties back into what you were saying about poverty. Mm-hmm. Is Thank that you. We put people in concrete blocks and expect them to be connected to spirit, <laughs> to God. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then we, we, we I've always thought yoga and meditation and mindfulness practices where white people should 
you know, always. And where did they Not come until from? Now in my life, <laughs> now in my life, I've learned that color were doing this way back, you know, way like going to the woods, you know, yes. the, the water, you yeah. know, all of these things were. But because we grew up in the city, that's white people shit. Like, why yeah. the hell am I going swimming? You know what I'm right. saying? When we have no open body of water. I mean, so it's like, it, it's just, mm-hmm. everything is by design. Yeah. You know, in the end of the make the creating of a city, you know, to push certain peoples here and create trees and 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 things like that in other places by design is just it's amazing and very terrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I have more questions for Courtney too, because you're working with a specific demographic who's come from the cities and is now in nature in Estes Park. Do you see what what do you oh, see? It's, ama- it's, it's amazing. It's like night and day. They come and say, "Yo, Doc, what the hell is this?" We were just in the wilderness, and I I, I felt so anxious to be sleeping outside. Uh-huh. And I did it for a week, and I was like, "I feel you," because mm. every night I'm laying there like, "Bro, you heard that? That was wind." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, did you, did, did you hear that? That was like rustling of some trees, you know, like it, it's so weird that freedom is jarring and mm-hmm. poverty is normalized, Ugh, you know, like yeah. if it's so just just to just to train our mind that what's normal is to be outside and all the time we is to be connected. We're homeless. Is mm-hmm. to be connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I just love talking to both of you. It's so great. <laughs> Go on and on and on and on. And I would oh, learn yeah. so much. Um, yeah, we have to be mindful of the time. And um, Missy, so good to connect with you. And I love to hear of your work. Keep us updated on how the work goes with your retreat center. Thank you. And it sounds phenomenal. And of Missy. course, all of your other work. And we'll put... Um, things in the show notes just about how people can contact you if they want to be more intimately involved in, in the work that you're doing ongoing master classes and coaching and and courses she's got a lot going on so always something cool to check out thanks awesome thank you so much thank you both it's so good to see you thank you so much much love, love you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.